I'll be reading this morning from a text from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As I am at the end, as you are, of another year, as I thought, what do we need? What do I need more than anything else for the next year? It is this which is encapsulated in the 18th verse of this chapter. And one that I don't think that any of us appreciate or realize the, the gravity and the truth that is herein expressed. I'd like to begin reading. I'll read the entirety of chapter 3. And then I'd like to turn back to its historical context for us to consider what this is about seeing the Lord. Now read with me, if you would, or hear the word as I read it, beginning at verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stone, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul is expressing a particular aspect of the Old Covenant when he speaks about the glory of Moses or the glory of God when Moses entered the presence of God and met with God and he saw God. 
And he's doing so, Paul is doing so in this epistle, to show how much more glorious the new covenant is. Now, the old covenant was glorious, but how much more that which is not passing away is given to us. That which was available to Moses has now been made available to all of us. And the way that we are changed, the way that we are sanctified, is we see the glory of the Lord. And then from glory to glory, we are changed into His likeness. Now let me pull from that historical setting back to Exodus chapter 34, and I'll begin reading at verse 39. Now it was when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near. And he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and he would speak to the children of Israel whatever he had commanded. Whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses that the skin of his face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven. Give us this desire to see your glory. As Moses, the servant of God, desired. And he saw it. And now available to us all, give us the desire. And we pray you would satisfy that desire. And may our longing ever increase for more that our appetite would ever be full, it would ever be growing, and you would come and meet it. Today we ask that all of our mouths would be opened wide and you would come and fill it, that we might taste and that we might see that the Lord is good, that our eyes would behold through faith to see the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ in all of His glory whose train fills the temple, whose glory goes throughout all of the earth, where the angels and the cherubim are attending the throne, crying out, holy, holy, holy. And the place shakes like an earthquake does rattle a building to its foundation. As the glory of the Lord goes out, and as we even hear the voice of the Lord, which breaks the cedars, yea, even the cedars of Lebanon, the voice of the Lord, and in His temple we cry out glory. Open our eyes this day that we might see. And when we leave, may we be a changed people, never to be the same. So take command of this time and this word, and we pray this for the sake of Christ, our living and risen and reigning glorious Savior. Amen.
may be seated. This past Sabbath festival, we read through the entirety of Genesis. And it was no sooner that we stopped that someone says, when are we going to Exodus? As you read through Exodus, you find out and you see that so much of it deals with the presence of God. In the very opening chapters, we see a burning bush and Moses approaching this burning bush, not knowing what it was, but he finds that this is a personal encounter with the presence of God. To now be called to his life ministry to go into Egypt and to lead his people out of the land of bondage into the land flowing with milk and honey. A people who were pagan, who had been cultivated even in the idolatry of Egypt, but yet God delivered with a mighty hand, not because they deserved it, but because our God is gracious. And he goes and he leads the people out. And as he leads them out into the wilderness, he then meets with them again at Sinai, And he prepares the people. And so much of Exodus deals with the presence of God. He shows them how holy he is and how he cannot have to do with sin or the wickedness or the depravity of this earth. But at the same time, he keeps them away from the mountain. He makes the way to provide for them to draw near unto him. And so we have the entire unfolding of the tabernacle the implements, the furniture, and all of the things by which now the people can draw near and come into the presence of God. The tabernacle is that place where God ordained to meet His people. And the significance of this passage before us is the vision that God granted Moses. And yet, the Apostle Paul, through the Spirit of God, tells us that that vision is available to every believer. Any of us can pass up into the presence of God. But what is it to see the Lord? Well, we see the evidence of God all around us every day. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament declares His handiwork. Night and a day, and night and a night, and day and a day, we hear. And we see, and we behold the evidence of the presence of our Creator as He speaks to us and reveals Himself through His creation. But most especially, We see God through His Word because He has revealed Himself in the book that is in your lap and before us open today. The context here in chapter 34 of Exodus, this historical setting in which Paul then is taking the application and making it true for us all. Earlier, 
Moses ascended up into Sinai, where then for 40 days he was in the presence of God, and God gave his Ten Commandments, summarized his law, engraven with the finger of God on the tablets that Moses brought. And while Moses was up there, the people of God down at the foot of the mountain lost their patience. And they entreated Aaron to make a golden calf. And here they were, having been delivered by the good and strong hand of God out of Egypt. Delivered from their idolatry. Delivered through the baptism of the Red Sea through which they came. Fed with the bread of heaven. And lost their patience. And turned to idolatry. Erecting the golden calf, God was ready to wipe out all of His people and start over from scratch with Moses. But Moses entreated God and he stood in the gap and he pleaded for the people as that great mediator would do. And God heard his prayer and he delivered his people And after that, it appears as though that God was going to allow his people to go then into the land. But he said to Moses, you can go into the land now, the land flowing with milk and honey, with all those blessings that I had mentioned to you, but I'm not going to go with you. Moses said, I'll have none of that. No, Lord. What good is that land if you do not go with us? We will not go unless you go with us. And as Moses would then have this great appetite for the presence of God far beyond all the benefits, because he had this insatiable desire for God himself, he then prays this prayer, Oh God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. God takes him back up on the mountain puts him in the cleft of the rock and causes himself to pass by while he's declaring his goodness and his compassion and his mercy and his long-suffering. And he began to show Moses an image that he had never seen. A glorious manifestation of himself. The likes of which no man has ever seen. And when Moses comes down from the mountain that second time, his face shone so brightly, but not knowing that he had to put a veil over his face. God granted Moses' request in such a remarkable way that as he desired to see the glory of God, he saw it. But he had no idea the impact that it left upon him. To know and experience something of the presence of God and the glory of God is to see the Lord. We have come through a very busy year. We have been engaged almost every month in some 
corporate activity. We have been busy and much has been accomplished. And for that, we give God our praise. I hope as we enter 2018, that it is our longing and our desire to make sure we spend time at the feet of Jesus and that we might see Him. Perhaps maybe you're much like me, energetic to serve, very quick to be a Martha, who may even find fault in Mary when Jesus has to rebuke and correct and say Mary has chosen a good thing to spend time with her Lord because she desires to see Him. And I trust that as we enter into 2018 that that will be the pressing need and appetite that we have that we might see the Lord, that we might experience the Lord so that even that effect becomes on us in ways that we know not of, but the others around us can see that you've been with Jesus. Seeing God has its conditions. There are certain conditions that must be met in order to see the Lord. Because we have to meet God on His terms. We cannot manufacture a God in our own mind. We cannot make Him to be something that we would like Him to be. In fact, He is far greater than anything that we can imagine Him to be, but we must meet Him on His terms. The tabernacle, of which later the Apostle John used as the flesh dwelt among us, that word, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That was the tent of meeting that the Old Testament often calls it. It is a place where God meets with His people. There are three places that the Lord specifically says, I will meet with you. The first of those places is in the most inner part of that sanctum, the Holy of Holies. And that is on the mercy seat. You have the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, the very covenant that God had made with His people, the very definition and parameters of the relationship that He has with His people by His grace, that is inscribing the very instruction and the will of God to show the very nature and the character of God encapsulated in summary form in this Ark of the Covenant upon which sat the mercy seat. That mercy seat is literally the atoning lid, the kafar lid. The place where propitiation is made. As God looks down from His heavens and He looks down upon the law of In the very expression of his nature, he sees where man and every man has fallen short of that glory. Every man is condemned, whether Jew or Greek, so that they are without excuse. But as he looks down and he delights to be in the presence of his people, he sees not 
a condemnation that His law so righteously condemns, but what He sees is the blood. And as He sees the blood upon that propitiatory, atoning lid, that very mercy seat, which is the very throne of God, His wrath for all of the brokenness and all of the sin is propitiated and satisfied and turned away as God sees the blood. There He meets with His people. It is that once a year on the Day of Atonement that the great high priest would enter in behind the veil and he would enter in not without blood. Oh, not without blood. And he would take the blood in behalf of himself. He would take the blood in behalf of the people. He would take the blood that represented the very blood of the only one that could propitiate. And he would take it and sprinkle it upon that atoning lid. So that God's people, through that representation of the great high priest, would meet with him there. And each one of us has a place where we meet with God on his terms. And only on his terms. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where you meet the Lord. And that day in which he was fulfilling all of those object lessons of the old covenant as he comes and lays his life down for sinners to save them from their sins, the day that he was nailed upon the cross and the hour came near, the veil in the temple rent in two, and we are instructed by Hebrews, that veil was his flesh. So that now through the flesh of Jesus Christ, through His propitiatory and atoning sacrifice, no longer is there a barrier, but we now boldly go into the throne room of God to meet with Him there at the atoning lid, the mercy seat, the throne room of God where Jesus has made the way. God says, I will meet you at the mercy seat. But He also tells us, That He will meet us at the place of sacrifice. As you enter into the tabernacle proper, this tent of meeting, it was segregated into three different degrees, if you will, of holiness or sacredness or separateness. Into the outer courtyard, as soon as you entered into this tabernacle, which, by the way, is a pattern of heaven itself which is patterned after the paradise that we have in the Garden of Eden, which was set in the east. And we have here now the entryway, where as sinful man had been expelled from the garden and cherubim set up there to protect the way back to the tree of life. Now God, in this earthly visual pattern, is showing forth how He is restoring paradise, making a way for it, and showing the very pattern of that through the tabernacle, of which now is fulfilled in Christ in the heavenlies. And here we have this outer courtyard, and as we come into the outer courtyard, we have this brazen altar of sacrifice. It is the place where the the offerings were given, the blood was shed, the animals were killed, and portions of it offered up upon the sacrifice of the altar. 
It was the place of consecration. It was the place where God says, I will meet with you, with you at the place of sacrifice. I will meet with you at the place of consecration. Where your life is consecrated unto God, that's where I'm going to meet. Perhaps today, perhaps in the closing of this year, you need to once again consecrate your life. As you desire to seek the Lord and meet with Him in a fresh new way, perhaps you need to get back to the cross and meet Him at the mercy seat. Perhaps you have never met Him there, and this is the day that you meet Him. Perhaps we've grown dull or we have entertained idols in our lives and we've gone astray from the place of consecration. Perhaps we spent too much time on ourselves and our lives are too much of an idol that we have forgotten that we are a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. And this day, God says, I will meet you at the place of sacrifice. Enter into this new year with lives upon the altar sacrificial in all of its entirety. And God will meet you there. But he also says, I will meet you at the altar of incense. The altar of incense was that piece of furniture within that second tier of holiness. As we enter out of the courtyard and we go into the first room of the tent of meeting, we have pieces of furniture there. We have the table of showbread and the the candle stand and the lamp stand. We have this altar of incense. And as we behold and look around in this somewhat small room, there is most striking this multicolored veil that behind it is great mystery and, and great awe and fear. And yet the closest to the veil is this altar of incense. The altar of incense would be kept burning night and day, but it would be fueled by the coals that came off of the altar of sacrifice. And it was up to the priest to keep that burning. So sacred was its recipe that no man could or should have, with fear of life, ever have reproduced that recipe. And here, this great aroma of smoke and smell, ascends up from the altar of incense, and so close to the veil it was that it would drift over behind the veil into the very presence of God, where the Shekinah glory dwelt. And that, we know from the book of Revelation, were the prayers of God's people. And that's what God says. I will meet you in the place of prayer. I will meet you in the place of prayer. That's what the church is called. A house of prayer. That is why Christ became angry. Because they took God's house which is called the house of prayer, and they turned it into a den of thieves. What we do in the church is we meet God at the mercy seat. 
We meet Him at the place of sacrifice, and we meet Him at the place of prayer. But what God says is, if you're going to meet me, it's conditional. You have to meet Him on His terms, in His way, the way that He's provided. And yet when you do, He is promised to be there. Amos 3.3 is a passage that is often misinterpreted. Can two walk together unless they agree? That verse is not saying that we must have some philosophical agreement among ourselves before we can then walk in unity together. That is not what that is saying. In fact, that was one of my assignments in Hebrew class where we had to go and look up that often misinterpreted text and why we hold to that. And yet... What it's saying literally is, can two walk together unless they first have an appointment to meet? And that's what God says. You have to meet with me. An appointed time, an appointed place, and you have to come to the place where I will be. And on my terms, and there, if you are, I will be there. If you are not seeing the Lord, it's because you're not meeting the Lord. And He tells us exactly where He's going to be. It is for us to meet the conditions whereby we can see the Lord. These conditions that He lays before us is first of all a willingness to obey. We have to have a willingness to obey. Moses, throughout all of the book of Exodus and through his life, was called by God the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord, someone who serves the master. In fact, right over into Revelation, the word of God declares that in eternity, he is still being called the servant of the Lord. What a great appellative that is. He did what he was told to do. Moses, in the time he lived, was called the most meek man that has ever walked the face of the earth. He can no longer bear that title since our Lord has walked, but what a great honorarium God did give him. But he did not have that naturally. Remember, this was the man that rose up and struck an Egyptian. Forty years he was in the palace of Pharaoh having been miraculously delivered out of death, not only by the one who would seek his life, but now was raised in the household of the one who sought his life. Isn't that a twist of irony for the Lord? And then he comes out 40 years later and has to be trained for another 40 years in the backside of the wilderness. And for 80 years, he had ministry training to serve God for 40, twice the time of preparation than he had for actual ministry. I know some people think I'm a very slow and deliberate person when it comes to ministry training. And that there is a big written exam for elders that they must endure. And even when they go through that, it's not finished. Folks, we spend a lifetime training for whatever God's ministry is that He has for us. And that's true not only of elders, but for every one of you. 
But how many times did the Lord command Moses to do something? And the next thing we see, Moses doing it. Now Moses do this, and Moses does it. Oh, the book of Exodus is given to us with all of these plans for the building of the tabernacle. With all of the details. And God says, I want you to build this tabernacle, this tent of meeting. And I want you to build it just this way. It's got to be exactly this long and no longer and no shorter. I want it this wide and no wider. I want it this tall and exactly so. It needs to have this in there and nothing else. But all of this that I command. It needs to be situated in this orientation. It needs to have the curtains here. They need to be made of this kind of material. And all of the glory and all of the the things that are visually seen. Do you know the most beautiful part of that tabernacle no man would ever see except one and one time a year? And it was in the Holy of Holies. That doesn't make sense to us because he showed us all of the visual beauty of a solid piece of gold of that atoning lid. Covering a gold covered ark made of acacia wood. And over it, the cherubim that is protecting the throne of God. But as we look up and as the lampstand begins to provide the illumination to that great high priest, once a year down here we'd see the embroidered red and purple and scarlet and all of the beautiful skins that were turned inward, not outward. The beauty of the glory of the presence of God is to be held by those who seek it and who long for it and who pray for it. And it is that which God has given His appointment to meet with His people. That's the longing that He desires for all of us to have. But there are conditions. But after He gives all these plans in a number of chapters, He then repeats everything again, almost to the minute detail of executing the plan. Why would God spin the pages over here and He couldn't just say, and they just executed it perfectly over here? He goes through it all over again because whatever God told Moses, Moses did it and He did it precisely as God told him. If we're going to see the Lord, we must be obedient to His Word. The Gospel of John in the 14th chapter is Jesus is in the upper room preparing his disciples for their great crisis, but revealing the greatness of the Trinity before them. He tells them, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. I will show him my glory. Oh, how the disciples needed that because in not many, not much time, just within days, within hours, the Lord would be taken from them and laid upon the cross and the disciples thought all was but lost and he had to remind them, I will manifest myself to you. I will meet with you again. But we must be obedient to his word, not a heartless legalism. Not using obedience as a bargaining chip for God. God, I'll obey you here if you give me this. No. But a willingness to put ourselves 
in the place with the desire to see and experience God. If that is our desire, it will not be disappointed. The psalmist says, one thing I have desired, to see the beauty of the Lord. To go behind that inner sanctum through the veil and to see the beauty of the presence of all that is before God. Who can ascend in that holy hill? Well, he only who has clean hands and a pure heart. Obedience becomes the stepping stone for you seeing the Lord. It's the only way. It's sometimes a very difficult way to obey God with those details and with that precision and that heart. But it is the only way to see the Lord. Secondly, there's another condition. And that condition is you have to be willing to enter into the cloud. This is to walk by faith, not by sight. And the path to God's presence is not always clear. It is sometimes filled with great fear and trembling. It is, it is sometimes obscure, and we cannot see it all. But that is why we are to walk by faith. But if you want to see the Lord, you've got to have a willingness to enter into the cloud. You might remember the context of which Deuteronomy then begins to give his commentary on, but that cloud, when God began to meet with the children of Israel at Sinai, he says, prepare the people and let not a single person, nor even their animal, come and touch this mountain, lest they be shot through and killed. And on the third day, as the people of God, as was instructed came before God at Mount Sinai with his fear and trembling, not touching the mountain. Now all of a sudden the mountain quaked and lightnings and thunderings and the cloud descended down upon it and darkness was upon the whole mountain as they looked up and the voice of God became so thunderous that the people said, It is enough! Speak to Moses and we will hear him, but let us not hear God lest we die. The holiness of God and that which inspires the fear of His people, but rightly so. And at the same time, it is the very God who is gracious and good to provide the way for them to come. That was His desires that they might meet with Him. And here in this thunderous, visual, aural, sensible experience at Mount Sinai with things trembling and lightnings flashing and thunders quaking and the voice of God where it brought fear into the people of all that saw it. God said to Moses, come up here. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be pretty fearful. I'm sure it was for Moses. I don't think he just cavalierly just said, okay, Lord, and just went up the mountain. When he had heard God say, not a person or animal would touch it. 
with all of the lightnings and the thunder and the quaking all around still continuing to go, God says, come up. It is an untouchable place. Darkness covered the mountain. But as Moses, the servant of the Lord, did, as he so often did, he walked by faith and he obeyed the Lord and he had a willingness to go up into the cloud. It was a fearful sight as Moses looked up. What he could only see with his eyes at that particular point was not soothing nor easy. It was awful and terrible and very fearful. He was not sure what there was there, but he had a willingness to go, a willingness to ascend into the very dark place, the fearful place, in order to meet and see the Lord. This time that we're approaching in the year, or the time of the year, in this part of the country, we are used to having storm shelters and safe rooms. And the clouds come, and we watch our radar, and We watch for those signs of red and those lines of storms. But this spring, I want you to remember what Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 says. That those clouds, those clouds are the dust of God's feet. Clouds that we see that inspire so much fear in us are the very evidence of the presence of God, a moving God, a living God. They are but the dust of God's feet. I'm sure some of you have possibly experienced, but probably no one like our pilot among us. He was sitting on a runway with storm clouds overhead and rain upon the windshield. And you go down the runway and the storm is pressing down upon the earth and you go up through the clouds and it's dark and dreary and you don't see a bit of where you're going. But there's something that you trust. You rise to an elevation, an altitude that finally gets up beyond the clouds and it's bright and it's blue and it's clear and it's glorious. And that's what Moses was willing to go see beyond the clouds, beyond what his eyes could see. He was willing to take that journey. Oh, that journey is not always comfortable. It is not easy. It often is filled with fear. Trials will come. But in it, we come to experience something that otherwise we would never experience. And that should be the longing of us all to see the presence of God. For the just shall walk by faith, not by sight. Will you obey Him? Are you willing to go into the clouds? But another condition that must be met is you must have a willingness To go it alone. 
When God spoke to Moses, he says, no man's going to come with you. You're going to come alone. And just like for Moses, we cannot see God or experience his presence through the eyes of another. You may be baptized because your parents brought you to the font of baptism when you were born. And as they had faith in believing the covenant promises for you, that does not assure you the presence of God if you do not exercise alone, personally, your faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot see the Lord through somebody else's eyes. You can only enjoy what you have if you personally own it, if you personally know it, if you personally are willing to go through the cloud. It's possible to be in the house of God, surrounded by other great people, coming into the place of worship. It's possible to be here in this context And to see and to know something of the presence that others are in. But enjoyment of the Lord is a personal thing. While you have proximity, you will not have personal enjoyment unless you yourself, personally, individually, have that desire and you walk and have Enjoyment of the Lord by going into the cloud. Moses was alone when he saw the Lord. Moses was alone when he met God at the burning bush where God revealed his great covenant name, the I Am. Jacob was alone when he wrestled with God at Peniel. Daniel was alone when he had that celestial vision. Ezekiel was alone. John was alone on Patmos when he saw and God gave him the revelation. It was these personal, individual encounters. There was a sense that Saul of Tarsus was alone. While he was in a company, he had a personal encounter that the others could not see or experience. It must be a personal, individual encounter in seeing the Lord. You are not riding in on the coattails of mom and dad. You are not surrounded by good people who enjoy the presence of God and so fit your way in. You must personally and individually come to Jesus. Cling to Him. Walk with Him. And desire personally to see Him. To encounter Him. But there's something here of a great comfort to know that if that's your desire, God says there's a certainty about it that you will see. There's something certain that God promises that if you walk by faith, you will not be unfulfilled. You will not be left unsatisfied. Your hope will not be deferred. If you seek Him, you will find Him. 
That's a promise. If you seek Him with all your heart. James tells us that if you draw near unto God, He will draw near unto you. That's not only a promise, but as one writer has said, that's also an indictment. Because oftentimes I don't feel that God has drawn near unto me. And the indictment is, He has promised that. The question is, have you drawn near unto Him? If we confess that we don't feel the nearness or the presence of God, perhaps we need to examine ourselves because God is not a liar and He is faithful to His promises. And He has promised that He will meet with us. He has promised that we will find Him if we seek Him with all of our heart. Each time that Moses encounters this presence of God, he, he learns and he experiences something new. And those who wait upon the Lord will never be disappointed. But as we come to meet with God, there are consequences or implications that are true for everyone who comes into the presence of God. There are unmistakable effects. When Moses came and met with God quite unknown to himself, but was known to everyone else, his face shone as he came down off the mountain. To the extent that he would have to put a veil over his face when he went to talk with the people, and he would take it off when he went to speak with God. And the more we see God, the more we will become like Him. The more the Shekinah glory will be reflected, and the more revelation will come from our witness the more godly we become. The word godly comes from two words that means to be like God. John tells us in his little epistle, in chapter 3, verse 2, that when Jesus appears, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Now, there's something about our glorification that involves seeing Jesus. And when we see the Lord Jesus, we become like Him in all of that glory. But as it is true for our glorification, there is something about it that is true for our sanctification because glorification is really the culmination of our sanctification. So how are you to become more holy? How are you to be sanctified in 2018? And the answer is, you need to see Jesus. Something about seeing Christ makes us like Him. It was clear that the disciples, through the testimony of the Jews, says, we know that they have been with Jesus. And there was something about them that they and others knew that they had been in the presence of Jesus. The people knew that Moses had been in the presence of God, for he had this glory. And it was a remarkable thing because Moses himself did not know this. Moses was glorious in the eyes of everyone who saw him but himself. 
Isn't that really genuine humility? And there's a sense of humility of those who have been in the presence of God. You can be no nothing else. And so much of our problems in our own lives and in our family lives and our marriages and in the church comes because of pride. And what we need is to spend more time in the presence of God. And there's a humility there that is true because Moses didn't even realize. And yet everyone who's been in the presence of God like this has always got a message to speak. Moses told the people what God told him. Everyone who's ever been in the presence of God and seen his glory has a message to speak. If you want boldness for your gospel witness, you just need to spend more time in the presence of God. And when you see his glory, you'll have a message to speak. Isaiah saw the Lord and he fell on his face. And the next thing you know, God's restoring him. And God is crying, who, who, who will I send? And Isaiah says, send me. They're not going to hear you. Send me anyway. You got a tough ministry. Send me. How can I be the same? I've seen your glory. Ezekiel saw glory and majesty, and he had a message to speak. John saw the glory on the Lord on Patmos. He had a message to speak. And by our own lives and words and witness, we've got a message to speak. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, we are changed from glory to glory into the likeness of Jesus Christ as we behold His glory. And this comes right on the heels of Paul saying, you are the written epistle. You are the message. You are the instrument. You are the medium. For the Spirit of God has engraved it upon your heart. May it be said of you this next year, May it be said of me, he's been with Jesus. I can see it. I can hear it. I can sense it. There's a glory. There's this epistle that I'm reading. And I'm reading this man's life that this man has been with Jesus. As Paul tells young Timothy, let your progress be evident unto all. And what was the secret to that progress? Being with Jesus. As we come this next year and we consider what God would have for us, no matter what human effort, no matter what we attempt, no matter what we do, whether it be personally or a family or as a church, We must do it in the grace of Christ, with the Spirit of God. And we must do that which is impossible for us, but is possible with God. But there is no way that's going to happen if we don't have time with Jesus seeing His glory. And when we do, we will never be the same. The gospel never leaves a man where it finds him, ever. The immediate context of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, 
The gospel to some is a stench. And it is leading them further into those who are perishing in the condemnation. But to those who are being saved, it is the pleasant fragrance of Christ. But there is one truth that Scripture says, is that same gospel, it never leaves anyone the same. It hardens some, it softens others, but it never leaves any of us where it finds us. May it be true of us this year that that gospel so works in our lives that the the fragrant aroma is fanned and the the smoke waffles up even with greater intensity so that the incense of your life can be smelled and the, the book written in your heart can be read and that people and your children and your spouse knows that you've seen the Lord. May that be true of us in this coming year. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, how far short do we fall in our worldly desires that often choke out the very pleasant riches of grace and cause a fruitless end of what are doing. And we do pray that you would rid us from our idolatry and those things that beset us, that we might run the race well, that we might run without being disqualified, and that as we run, we run to the feet of Jesus. Through whatever fearful cloud may be lurking, they are but the dust of your feet. May we be willing to send right through it to see your glory. May we be obedient as you've instructed without pushing back, without challenging you, without qualifying. Lord, what you say, may we do. May we not hesitate and may we do it with joy. May we do it even when we don't know the way, but may we obey you knowing that you know the way. May we have a great desire to see the Lord high and lifted up. May we have a desire to see your glory. And Lord, where you have given us this desire and the conditions are met, we know that you there meet with us. Give us this longing with greater capacity. And may everyone around us know in 2018, as we come to the end of it, Lord willing, that we can look around and know that we've all been with Jesus. And the world might know that we are your disciples. We pray this for the great name and sake of our Lord Jesus and for his kingdom and for your glory. Amen.